LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. Hundreds. Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over a hundred years ago. All right, everybody. It is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, and I am stepping out of my normal monologue world and entering back into the role of the, the host, if you will. And I have a, a guest that's going to be joining me today. And I'm going to just tell you straight up, I don't think I wasted 30 seconds uh, before I reached out to him and asked him to be on this show. I, once I saw him tweet out things that are absolutely vibing with where I've been talking for a long time, Tulsi Gabbard is a flat-out grifter. And um, a lot of the things that she does and others who support her do have really, really bent the left into an unrecognizable Gordian knot of bullshit. And so what I've done is I've invited Ben Norton to join me. And guys, as straight a shooter as you get, and I'm very, very excited to have him join me. And uh, here we go. Ben Norton. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Steve. Pleasure being here. Absolutely. Well, this is my first opportunity interviewing you. And I've interviewed hundreds of people. And I'm just so excited to have you on here. We, we do talk a lot of international stuff. So hopefully we can have you on Macro and Cheese. Folks, that is a foreshadowing. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Tell me about Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, I have my own opinions and people that watch this show have heard my opinions left, right, and center. What's going on here with Tulsi? Well, I think Tulsi Gabbard is, is many things. You mentioned she's a grifter. That's certainly true. She's an opportunist. But I also think she's part of a larger right-wing operation to aimed at disrupting the anti-war movement. We should keep in mind that Tulsi Gabbard, who started as a Democrat, is now basically a Republican. She says she's an independent, but she's openly endorsing numerous pro-Trump Republicans, including neoconservative figures who are explicitly pro-war. She just endorsed a general, a former U.S. military general who's called for the U.S. to send troops on the ground to Ukraine to fight Russia. And yet she claims to be anti-war. So obviously this whole grift that she's pushing of claiming to be anti-war is false. She's not anti-war. What she actually has said clearly multiple times is that when it comes to the war on terror, she's a hawk. When it comes to regime change wars, she claims she's a dove. So you can't claim to be anti-war and then say certain wars are good and certain wars are bad. That's not how being anti-war works. We should also keep in mind that Tulsi Gabbard is herself part of the U.S. Army Reserves. And this fact is something that she's boasted about. Now, I'm not saying that, that veterans can't be anti-war. There are people like Mike Preisner, who's a great veteran who's anti-war and anti-imperialist. But unlike Tulsi Gabbard, he's actually consistent. And keep in mind, Tulsi Gabbard is not only a veteran, she's still a part of the U.S. Army Reserves. And not a lot of people have investigated what exactly she does. But if you look into what Tulsi Gabbard does with the U.S. military, she's part of the 351st Civil Affairs Command. And the Civil Affairs Command is over a larger branch, is under a larger branch it's called the U.S. Army Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command. That is to say, she's part of a U.S. military unit that wages psychological warfare. And I can't help but think that she's been involved in a psychological warfare operation against the anti-war movement, trying to portray herself as anti-war while she objectively supports numerous wars. In 2021, in September, 
she tweeted, she said, you haven't heard from me in probably four months because I was in Africa with the US Army where I was doing civil affairs. She didn't say what country it is. A lot of people have speculated it was probably Somalia. So how can you say you're anti-war while you're actively participating in the US Army in its military operations abroad in Africa and supporting other wars and claiming that you're, you support the war on terror? So now we see that Tulsi Gabbard has just left the Democratic Party. And of course, she went in Tucker Carlson, who is part of the same disinformation operation, trying to recruit anti-war people in support of war. Of course, uh, Tucker Carlson, he says he's against war with Russia, but that's because he wants war with China and he wants war with Iran. So we see part this larger right wing operation. Tulsi Gabbard is clearly part of this now. People like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. What they, they, they play a political sleight of hand. What they say is we're against war, but they are actually only against certain specific wars. They say, for instance, we don't want war with Russia, but they continue to push for war with China or war with Iran, or they wage economic war on Venezuela and Cuba. Economic war is another form of war. Just because you don't have missiles dropping doesn't mean people aren't dying. Tens of thousands of Venezuelans have died because of the illegal sanctions imposed on Venezuela by the U.S. government, specifically by the Trump administration, although it's bipartisan. So Tulsi Gabbard is not only involved actively in U.S. Army psychological operations, but she's also clearly part of this right wing operation that is aimed at disrupting and co-opting parts of the anti-war movement in order to elect Republicans who obviously are not anti-war in any way. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, as I as I look around at, quote unquote, part of the Bernie movement as it's kind of fractured. I mean, it was a hard sell for Bernie to sell Hillary Clinton. People that understood Hillary's history and understood who she was didn't see her as a viable option to begin with, had nothing to do with being a Republican. So there's like this weird conflation of I don't like Hillary, so therefore I must be a Republican that's not a true statement. If anybody that's a serious person knows that's not a true statement, but that's kind of the narrative in the mainstream. And it's the narrative that many of those that broke from the kind of left slash Bernie left that went over to the Tulsi camp and went over into that kind of skewing very right wing. They, they literally have created an environment where there is no chance of uniting unless you're kind of uniting in this weird, you know, hey, if I can own quote unquote shit lib by going on with Tucker Carlson or doing whatever, then, you know, I've achieved my goal. I think it's deeper than that. Like you said, it's part of a deeper thing that these people are kind of being dupes for. I can't imagine they're they're deep in the know or maybe maybe they are. Maybe they're operatives. I don't know. What do you think is controlling this? What do you think is creating this narrative? I mean, where is it coming from? Well, I would say there are, there's, it's very likely that there are intelligence agencies involved. Everyone probably knows about COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program overseen by the FBI that was aimed at destroying the anti-imperialist left and especially targeting black revolutionary organizations. We know that the Chicago leader of the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, was murdered by the FBI and the Chicago Police Department. We know that U.S. intelligence agencies were also involved in assassinating Malcolm X and MLK. And of course, COINTELPRO never really ended. So the, the, the difficult thing about that as a journalist, you know, I investigate a lot of these things, but it's very hard to find concrete smoking gun evidence. So you have to look at the evidence that exists, like for, 
for instance, the fact that Tulsi Gabbard is involved in U.S. Army psychological operations. But, you know, that's much harder to, to, to pinpoint. What we can show very clearly is that there's also a concerted operation being waged by right-wing organizations, by people like Steve Bannon, with funding from billionaire oligarchs like Peter Thiel. They have spoken about this quite clearly. Steve Bannon, who's a fascist, I mean, he, he talks about Giulia Avola, who is this Italian fascist who referred to himself as a super fascist. We know that Steve Bannon is deeply influenced by these fascist philosophers. Steve Bannon also thinks that the so-called Judeo-Christian West is in a civilizational war with China, which he considers to be atheistic and communist and against Judeo-Christian white Western people. So he wants war with China. That's why he doesn't want war with Russia. He wants Russia to unite with Western imperialism for a war on China. And this is the whole like Russiagate nonsense, which is a whole other conspiracy. But it was one of the main reasons it emerged is because Trump and Bannon wanted to unite with Russia against China, not because they are secretly like, you know, Putin puppets or whatever. That's just ridiculous. It's because they wanted rapprochement with Russia in order to wage war in China. Ironically, the Obama administration started this policy in the first term under the Hillary Clinton State Department. You know, we talked about how Hillary Clinton is not in any way a progressive. She's a complete war hawk and a neoconservative. And in, in her term as Secretary of State under Obama, she actually had something she called the Russia Reset. She had this red button and she met with Sergey Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and wanted to reset U.S.-Russia relations. And at the same time, the Obama administration announced a so-called pivot to Asia, which means pivot to war in Asia, specifically war on China. Because, of course, China is now the largest economy in the world, according to purchasing power parity measurements, which is much better than just measuring GDP in U.S. dollars. So the U.S. capitalists who determine U.S. foreign policy and the large corporations, they see China as a major threat to their hegemonic control of the global economy. And they want to destroy the Chinese economy. That's why we see more and more sanctions. Trump waged this trade war with China. And now the Biden administration has continued imposing more sanctions on China. So anyway, the point is that people like Steve Bannon and Peter Thiel, they are involved in trying to co-opt elements of the anti-war movement and the left and recruit them for Republicans in order to eventually wage war on China. So if you look very closely at the way Tucker Carlson speaks or, um, you know, Trump, when they talk about how they, you know, they're critical of war or whatever, they actually are not against all wars. They always pull the sleight of hand where they say we're against uh, stupid wars, they say, against Russia, but they want war with China. This is all about war with China. That's what they're trying to build up for, trying to manufacture consent for. Peter Thiel, who is a billionaire, and he himself, uh, through his company Palantir, actually has very large contracts with the U.S. government, including with the CIA, including with police departments, many police departments around the U.S. We know that you know they're, they're infiltrated by far-right groups and white supremacists, and many of those police departments use Palantir technology from Peter Thiel in order to surveil people using facial recognition technology. So the point is that Peter Thiel is himself very fascistic, very far right. He's, he loves Donald Trump, and he's been trying to create this, this fake so-called right-wing populism and trying to win over some former Bernie supporters and disaffected independents and even some left-leaning people and recruit them for the Republicans. So this gives it to this whole ridiculous narrative of the so-called populist Republicans. We see people like J.D. Vance claim to be, you know, I support the working class. We've seen some Republicans claim they want to create a working class GOP. Of course, that's absurd. 
because we know that the GOP, just like the you know, neoliberal Democrats, are completely bought and sold by Wall Street, by large corporations. They don't support unions. They don't support increasing taxes and corporations and the rich. There's in no way are they pro-working class. But what we see is a concerted campaign by right-wing operatives with billionaire funding to try to rebrand Republicans as anti-war and pro-working class. And Steve Bannon said very clearly, when Bernie Sanders was sabotaged in the primary by the Democratic Party, Steve Bannon said that Trump welcomes Bernie supporters. You should join our camp because Trump is supposedly anti-establishment in, in scare quotes. We know that they've been trying to win over some of these former Bernie supporters. And unfortunately, with some of these deceptive tactics and people like Tulsi Gabbard, there have been some successes there. You brought something up very important um, in, in your monologue in the beginning, and I think it's it's worth stating. Austerity is murder. I mean, that's my tagline on Twitter, and I mean it. I live by it. Austerity can be seen in a lot of ways, and sanctions is a form of, of creating austere conditions in these countries. And to your point, it does kill those, uh, those national, uh, all the nations that are in you know, being impacted by the United States imperialistic uh, view on neoliberal capitalism as it expands markets, uses the IMF, NATO, and all the other tools at its disposal to create these conditions, whether it be through structural adjustments with the IMF and all the other nonsense of the World Bank. I mean, this is this is where it's at right here, in my opinion. You see this playing out on the stage over there with Ukraine and Russia as well. I think a lot of people get caught up in some of the more salacious Nazi this, Nazi that. And I'm not saying that's not a factor, but I am saying that the United States is not ideologically driven toward Nazism. They don't care. They want control. And this is about resources grabbing. I mean, the breadbasket of Europe is Ukraine. And it is right there, a key, key area for not just the EU, if their neoliberal NATO approach works, but also for Russia, who is really dependent on the outputs of Ukraine to to feed their people and and a host of other things for for the pipelines that they send their uh, fuel out with, et cetera. So, I, you know, I guess my question to you is this, given that there is clearly a Cold War going on right now with the U.S., a proxy war with the U.S., and Tulsi Gabbard at such a bizarre time coming out and saying, I can no longer be in this party. And don't get me wrong. If she just stopped there, I'd have been fine. I would have been like, yes, they are an absolute neoliberal, lying, (laughs) performative, nonsensical, hateful party, whatever. But she she went way, way further than that. And, And that's when the grift started for me. My question to you is within the scope of United States imperialism, economic imperialism through these NGO type arrangements with the World Bank, IMF, et cetera. How do you see that playing out in terms of exacting a price on China and Russia, if you will, um, given Tulsi's departure here? It seems like they're, this is all part of a larger picture. I, like, I don't know who the good guy is here. I don't, I don't see a good guy I, at all. I, who, who is the good guy and, and what's really happening there? Well, I mean, we shouldn't see politics in terms of good guys and bad bad guys. It's like this Hollywood view that that really (laughs) obscures more than it clarifies. The reality is that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard is part of this clear right wing operation. She's not an independent. She's going to be a Republican. Everyone knows she's going to run for office as a Republican. What you mentioned, this speech she gave where she criticized the, the Democratic Party for being controlled by a warmongering cabal of elites who who love wokeism and are anti white. 
Obviously, this is all right-wing buzzwords to appeal to white nationalists and Trump supporters. She's every single day on Twitter now, she's endorsing yet another Trump Republican for office in the midterms. She's going to run as a Republican. Now, of course, she is right that the Democratic Party is full of warmongers. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a socialist. I'm an anti-imperialist. But as you said, that's where I disagree. That's the only point I agree, where I agree with her. From then on, I disagree because then she says the Democrats are anti-white, which is absurd. There, there is, there's no anti-white racism in the U.S. This is just a buzzword to appeal to white nationalists. And then she says that they're, they support wokeism, which doesn't mean anything. Woke is just a, it's part of this culture war because in the United States, we're never allowed to have a political debate about actual economic policy and actual foreign policy. Everything's about culture war, right? The Republicans and Democrats make, try to distract us all with these dumb culture war issues. And then we also saw that Tulsi, you know, she demonized trans people. And then she said that uh, the Democrats are against people who are religious, which is obviously also absurd. She's trying to appeal to this conservative base because she, one, she's creating a YouTube channel. So she's going to make a lot of money being yet another right-wing talk host. And then she's going to eventually run as a Republican. But this, this gets into your more fundamental question, which is more important about the new Cold War and the geopolitics. And this is something that I report on all the time in my work. The reality is that, you know, you're right that the war in Ukraine is partially about resources. But for Russia, it's actually different. For Russia, the war in Ukraine, is it's, it actually is about security. We can go back to 2008 when former U.S. ambassador to Russia, William Burns, who's now CIA director, admitted in a, in a confidential State Department cable, which was released by WikiLeaks. That's why Julian Assange is a political prisoner right now. And William Burns said that if NATO expands into Ukraine, this is going to divide the country. It's going to lead to a civil war and it could force Russia to intervene. And this is exactly what happened. The U.S. wanted this to happen. The U.S. surrounded Russia with hostile military bases, expanding NATO, violating the promises made in 1990 and 1991, saying that NATO would not expand one inch east after the reunification of Germany. NATO lied and it expanded more than a dozen times and it continues to expand. And at the same time, what is the U.S. goal in this? Or specifically, what is Wall Street's goal? Because all of these policies are driven not by you know, people in the United States. They're driven by capitalists, by corporations, and by Wall Street. What they want is they want to prevent the economic integration of Europe with China and Russia. That is the fundamental goal. It's economic for them. They want to make sure that Germany is not reliant on Russian energy and Chinese markets. They want to prevent France from being dependent on Russian energy and Chinese markets. In fact, the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, he just acknowledged this in a speech he gave on October 10th. I have a report about this at my website, multipolarisa.com. He acknowledged that the Western neoliberal capitalist model that emerged, especially after the overthrow of the Soviet Union in 1991, was predicated on cheap Russian energy because after overthrowing the Soviet Union, the West imposed neoliberal structural adjustment policies on Russia, which led to mass privatizations and the rise of the oligarchs. And, and especially selling very cheap gas and oil to Europe. So Russia became the largest exporter of gas and oil to Europe up, to, up until the beginning of this year. And also at the same time, Joseph Borrell acknowledged, this is the EU foreign policy chief, acknowledged that the neoliberal Western model was likewise predicated on exploitation of cheap, low-paid labor in China and China's massive markets 
and inexpensive consumer goods from China. But we've also seen that the Chinese economy has skyrocketed in growth, lar largely led to this state-led economy, economic model. And now Chinese labor is much better paid, which means consumer goods are more expensive. Furthermore, we know that because of the Trump trade war policies that have been continued under Biden and the sanctions on China and firms like Huawei and more recently on semiconductors, that means that there is less Western access to Chinese markets. And we also know, of course, that the economic situation in terms of uh, Europeans, uh, you know, their own internal economic situation with austerity and neoliberal policies and with especially certain countries in the Eurozone like Greece and Italy, which have this odious debt that they can't pay off because their debt is denominated in, in the euro, which they can't print. Only the, the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, Germany can print. The point is that all of this multiplicity of factors comes together to show that Europe is in an, an economic crisis and it now is having to pay 10 times as much for U.S. energy exports of liquefied natural gas as opposed to the pipeline gas from Russia. And we now know that the Nord Stream pipelines, which were gas pipelines from Russia to Germany, which were actually, they were, those are policies that were pushed by the German industry, not by Russia itself. It was German industrialists who wanted to have cheap access to cheap, constant Russian pipeline gas. Well, now Germany and France and Britain are importing U.S. liquefied natural gas, LNG, which is significantly more expensive, which is leading to huge increases in energy prices in Europe, which means that the U.S., through pressuring this conflict and pushing and pushing and pushing right up on Russia's borders until Russia invaded Ukraine, it succeeded in sabotaging any attempt at trying to unify the European and Russian and also by extension Chinese economies. And now Russia is instead exporting its oil and gas to China, to India, to other parts of East and South, Southeast Asia. So the reality is that Russia is integrating its economy into Asia and Europe is becoming economic, economically subordinated to the United States. So like I said, all of this is setting up the stage for war with China and Tulsi Gabbard and Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. And there are also far right politicians in Europe who are doing the exact same thing. They are all preparing the population's manufacturing consent for war with China. You know, with the January 6th hearings going on, I, I, I'm not terribly interested in all of it, but it does make for an interesting, uh, like, what is the rationale behind, uh, I guess, the committee? Is it a spectacle? Do you feel there's substance being brought out here? Is this something to hang our hats on? The way I look at it as a leftist is I say, you all just made our job a lot harder on the left. Because now if we want to take to the streets, if we want to fight back against the austerity or fight back against wars or fight back against police killings or or fight back against any of the fascist stuff that we're seeing in the world today, that we have a we have this precedent now, unfortunately, that the right wing, who is far more organized in their uh, approach to attacking these issues than the left, quite frankly. And I mean, they're in power. They've got money. They're organized. I mean, it, it, that's why being a lefty is so hard, right? It, these guys have have really kind of mucked it up. And to me, the way, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, casting, you know, crazy thoughts into the world. But to me, I just see this as, you know, as a leftist, as another barrier to us 
demanding, making demands and, and going out there and doing direct action and going out there and and rallying. And, and quite frankly, Tulsi Gabbard has been a part of making that. So I, I really feel that this has been one of her chief, uh, if, if you will, poison pills for the left is that being part of that has really wrecked it for people that are fighting for real things, real life, real. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, I could go on for an hour about the global north and global south and climate crisis that is going to create climate wars. These these migrations of climate refugees, et cetera. I mean, the world is an ugly place with lots of nuclear uh, weapons in places where I mean, like think about with Pakistan. Biden the other day saying Pakistan is like the most dangerous country out there. I'm interviewing Akhtaz Afsal, who is a, an economist in, in Pakistan, who is saying, we just got blown away by massive flooding, climate-related flooding. We've got tons and tons and tons of people that are displaced, thousands dead. No one's helping us. Our balance of payments and our farm reserves are not enough to be able to cover the rebuild. We need help. And there's Biden. They're saying they're the most dangerous nation. And there's Tulsi Gabbard saying, I'm leaving the party. Can you help me understand this dynamic here? Because it seems like it's part of this larger picture, this larger, we're going to create so much instability in the world that we can sneak in and do whatever the hell we want to do. And you're, you're going to be so distracted, so fatigued by chaos that there's just nothing you can do. I mean, I know it was a loaded thing. I'm talking January 6th. I'm talking a couple of things there, but I'm trying to pull it all together that chaos is being brought to us. And they've already kind of taken and locked the door on protests that's not going to lead to us being seen as terrorists or some other insanity that they can start pinning on us. I, forgive my uh, all over the place on that. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, just really briefly in the Pakistan comments, what the U.S. is doing right now in this new Cold War with the U.S. and the EU on one side versus China and Russia on the other is there are a lot of countries, the majority of the countries in the world that are neutral and they don't want to pick a side. And the U.S. is trying to pressure Pakistan and India to join its side. India, which has a very right-wing government run by Narendra Modi and the far-right BJP party, is part of the U.S. military alliance, the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is an anti-China alliance. It's referred to as the, the Pacific NATO against China. Um, but, China uh, but India also has very good relations with Russia. Um, Pakistan has very good relations with China, but very bad relations with Russia. So the irony is that, you know, Biden criticizes Pakistan in order to try to win support from India because India is cozying up to Russia. But at the same time, the U.S. just sold parts for F-16 um, planes to the Pakistani military. So the U.S. is selling weapons and military equipment to Pakistan and India at the same time while criticizing both of the governments at the same time. It's part of this, this diplomatic policy of trying to win them over in this new Cold War. Now, as for your questions about January 6th, I mean, like most things in U.S. politics, this is all about creating a domestic distraction in, instead of focusing on the real problems that are making life, genu life genuinely worse for working people in the United States, which is capitalism, inequality, unemployment, poverty, climate change, all of these problems, lack of health care, unaffordable education, debt, inflation. Instead of dealing with those economic problems, because, of course, both parties are dominated and controlled by corporations. They're completely neoliberal. They're both pro-capitalist. So they, they refuse to offer economic solutions to these problems that are caused by capitalism. So instead of focusing on those problems, they use culture war, 
Republicans scapegoat immigrants, they scapegoat LGBT people, and Democrats, they will you do the inversion, and then now they'll use things like uh, January 6th. Now, of course, January 6th does show that there is a very dangerous far-right movement in the U.S. that is increasingly authoritarian, that is willing to use violence, that's, that refuses to acknowledge when it loses elections, that is engaging openly in electoral fraud and voter suppression. Those are serious problems. But at the same time, by fixating so much on January 6th and ignoring all these other problems, how, for instance, how many times has Biden and, and you know the neoliberal leaders of the Democratic Party, how many times have they mentioned inequality? How many times have they mentioned the need for affordable health care and Medicare for all and universal health care? They never talk about those problems. Instead, they talk about January 6th, right? And so it's a distraction that can help work up their base because it is true that the far right is an actual threat to you know the very few vestiges of democracy that there are in the US and there are it's not really a democracy it's a capitalist plutocracy you know there've been studies by mainstream scholars at Princeton University acknowledging that average people in the United States have no impact on policy making it's all created by large corporations but the the very few vestiges of civil rights that are, that people in the US still have are being threatened that is true by these far right extremists but that's also those problems. Those are symptoms of larger problems, of structural problems in the way the U.S. economy and political system are organized. And because both parties are fundamentally unwilling and unable to challenge the roots of capitalism and imperialism, they focus on all these problems that distract working people. And the reality is that, you know, as you said, the, the only way we're going to actually have this, this real systemic change that we need is through grassroots organizing on the streets through labor unions. And fortunately, in the past few years, we've seen a resurgence of the labor movement. That is the most important thing happening domestically in the U.S. We need to strengthen those labor movements. But Democrats are not talking about supporting unions. They're not saying that we should, you know, organize your workplace or whatever. Instead, it's, it's all focused on these cultural issues that are abstractions that distract from the very real economic crisis that, that are, we are facing the entire world. I mean, you talked about climate change. Climate change is itself an existential threat, and it's deeply rooted in this capitalist system that says that we have to have permanent growth on a finite yeah. planet. That means destroying the entire planet so Wall Street can continue to make money every year. Absolutely. You know, uh, one of my favorite economists, he's uh, Jason Hickel, talks extensively That's about great. this. Jason Hickel is just a fantastic guy. Um, what are the... the I guess the question I have in, in this anti-woke kind of space, I, I was explaining this. Uh, I was actually on with Jordan uh, last night talking about this on status quo. One of the things that really jumps out at me is that there's a real difference between weaponized identity politics and what the street back in the day called woke. The idea of being woke really meant that you were aware, you understood the system, you you understood what was going on, and you were taking up for the least of these in the midst as part of solidarity, class solidarity, not let's go ahead and forget everything else that's going on and talk about how so-and-so can't pee in a co-ed bathroom or something like that. That's not what class solidarity is about and it's not what intersectionality is about and it's not what really woke is all about but the democrats have capitalized on veneer level i mean there's a great cartoon out there 
uh, where there's this bougie woman probably drinking a quad venti white mocha from Starbucks. And she's walking over top of a homeless person talking about how much she cares about the homeless. And, um, and, and it's like literally what you see right now. And, and quite frankly, I made mention when Biden was running that the, the most important surefire way to fire up a fascist movement is to take a proto-fascist like Biden, put him in office, let him be feckless. And so the people that are looking for that strong guy to walk into the bar behind Donald Trump, strong guy walks in the bar. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Biden is feckless. And he absolutely exudes everything that people that are already tired of feckless government would, would see. Biden represents that to him. So he, by his own, just by his very nature, by the very things that he says and does with this kind of the, uh, weaponized identity politics, okay, he has created the, the fertile ground for this clapback, if you will, on wokeness. And, and wokeness, when you notice we don't see a unified left when you know, I mean, going back to Monty Python, if you want to be get silly about it, we never see a unified left ever. Friends of mine, the liberation front of, of what is it? The, we're, no, we're the, we're the liberation the, the front, of, front of Judea. The Judea yeah. people's front. No, we're the Judea liberation front. No, we're the people's liberation front of Judea. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, but you, you, the left has such a hard time with microaggressions and slices, just this, that, and the other. So to unite in class solidarity has always been a challenge. You look, African-Americans, black and brown people of all shapes and sizes, first uh, nation, uh, you know, indigenous folks, you name it, that all these individuals have very real grievances to deal with very real first nation. They've lost their land. They were genocided. They were never given reparations. They've been treated like second-class citizens in their own reservations. you got people within the black and Brown community who are literally target practice for police. I mean, this is quite frankly, the conflation of weaponized identity politics and being a Howard Zinn aficionado or devotee is two very different things. I wanted to get your take on what you think Tulsi Gabbard is really dog whistling with her concept of anti-woke and what real woke is on the left. When I think of the Black Panthers and I think of, uh, you know, the conversion of Malcolm X as he realized what he was up against and going on back, even guys like Sandy Darity, who wrote great books like From Here to Equality, show every step along the way of the United States has chosen the exact wrong path in dealing with black and brown people coming from slavery times, even reconstruction, you name it, and going all the way to back to Bacon's rebellion. What are your thoughts on the difference between weaponized identity politics and woke? And what the hell is Tulsi Gabbard actually talking about? Yeah, well, the right wing loves this term woke or wokeism because it's like the term establishment or the so-called globalists. It's very vague on purpose. It's very ambiguous. So they can use it to mean whatever, whatever they want it to mean. Right. It's not specific. So when they say they're against wokeism, what they usually mean is they're against feminism. They're against LGBT equality and they're against anti-racism. So there's no, in my view, I, I say this all the time. The problem is not wokeism. You know, it's good to be feminist. It's good to be anti-racist. It's good to support LGBT equality. The issue is how these issues are weaponized and co-opted by neoliberals. And we see large corporations pretending to support Black Lives Matter or pretending to support LGBT rights. 
And they're not doing it because they believe in these issues. They're doing it because they recognize that many of their, you know, uh, their audience, their customer base are young people and young people tend to be motivated by a lot of these issues. They tend to be much more progressive. So it's very cynical. That's why Nike does Black Lives Matter ads. Of course, that form of kind of weaponized neoliberal corporate wokeism is something that is not left wing. And, and, and of course, the left should be against that. But that doesn't mean that you're against feminism and LGBT equality and anti-racism. And the right, what they do is they conflate them. So they say, if you support, you know, uh, if you're against racism and you support Black Lives Matter and you support women's rights, then you also support big corporations. It's this political sleight of hand they do, which is always absurd, considering we know that the right is sponsored by all of these corporations, is funded by all of these corporations. And, and in terms of this concept of identity politics, I mean, yeah, certainly neoliberal Democrats, what they'll often do is instead of trying to focus on class and, and ex economic exploitation because they're funded by corporations, they do try to, to co-opt the, the, uh, these identity politics issues and remove class from it. But that doesn't mean that those issues are wrong or bad. The issue, the, what we have to do is combine you know, anti-capitalism, socialism, class politics with anti-racism and feminism. And you mentioned groups like the Black Panthers, you know, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords. There are so many groups throughout history that did that very well. They understood how in order to struggle against white supremacy, you have to struggle against capitalism. And also in order to struggle against capitalism, you have to struggle against white supremacy because they're part of the same system. Democrats try to remove, neoliberal Democrats try to remove capitalism and class from that structure. But the reality is that Whiteness itself is a product of capitalism and colonialism. Where does whiteness come from? Whiteness was created by European colonialists in order to justify their enslavement of Africans and their enslavement of indigenous peoples. And they, they weren't enslaving them for fun. They were enslaving them to steal their labor, using these human beings as machines to make wealth. European capitalism, global capitalism, was founded on chattel slavery of African slavery, slavery of Africans, that is, and also based on the genocide and ethnic cleansing of indigenous peoples to steal their land. Capitalism has always been based on the idea of primitive accumulation. That means that the capitalists have to get their wealth from somewhere in order to make themselves rich and then in order to invest that wealth in order to make more money, right? Through extraction of surplus value. That primitive accumulation that founded capitalism was based on chattel slavery of Africans and genocide of indigenous peoples. So the whole concept of whiteness emerged out of Europeans saying, oh, we're superior to Africans in order to justify enslaving them to use their labor to, to become rich. So capitalism was founded in white supremacy. You can't say you're against white supremacy and not be anti-capitalist. And that's, yeah. that's when, when we see you know, neoliberal Democrats and corporations try to take anti-racism out of anti-capitalism, of course. That's an example of, you know, this weaponization of wokeism. And that in that way, neoliberal Democrats and Republicans, they reinforce each other mutually, right? Or dialectically, you could say. So the Republicans, they point out the neoliberal weaponization of wokeism. And then the neoliberal Democrats use neoliberal weaponization of wokeism. And they, they reinforce each other. And of course, the left is never even part of the discussion because, as you said earlier, 
The left doesn't have big, you know, billionaires funding left-wing organizations. The left is completely kicked out of all mainstream media. So everything becomes a false, a false debate between these far-right Republicans on one side and these center neoliberal uh, Democrats on the other side, and the left is just ignored. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess my question now comes into the flavor of. So what's next, right? Uh, obviously, you you believe that Tulsi is going to run for office. She's going to have her own right wing YouTube channel, whatever. She'll probably be on Rumble talking to you know Trump supporters, MAGA again, and so forth. What do you think in terms of the political landscape? And we've got a midterm coming up here, so the timing of this is is interesting. I I'll be honest with you, I've all but I haven't given up but I've all but given up on electoral solutions in any way, shape or form. I really do believe that it requires grassroots mobilization. I believe that we have to build parallel institutions. I think we need to be bigger, stronger, and more resilient than the election cycles because we have to break it down and put it back together, break it down, put it back together, break it down, put it back together. And I really feel like in order for us to ever make any meaningful gains to be able to start accumulating some sort of a, an ally base to actually have some sort of real, I hate to say Occupy Wall Street, but to have some sort of a, a driving force to get us back out there so that we get shake off the, the, the blues, if you will, and, and really recognize that it, it, we, there's no savior coming. It's us. We're, we're the savior. How do you yeah. see the elections playing? I, I I really feel like there's something going on here, but I am I am I admit it right up front. I'm extraordinarily cynical about electoral politics to the point where I my mind is, guys, we don't have time. This the don't look up should have been our our wake up call. That was a great just sort of in your face kind of movie. If we can somehow or another leverage what's happening today to get out in the streets what's the is there a plan is there anyone doing good things is is this election coming up here useless is there value here it's a lot to unpack but I, to me i'm trying to find a reason to care about it because to me the the long term is us uniting getting away from party dominated narratives and getting out there and fighting for what we know to be true um your thoughts i i agree with you the ch the fundamental change that is needed everywhere, not just in the US, but around the world. It needs to come for, at the grassroots level through organizing workers, labor unions, organizing organizations and parties, creating independent parties and revolutionary organizations. We need a revolution. It's not going to happen just, you know, voting for a Democrat or a progressive or whatever. We need, we genuinely need a revolution. Now, the, the situation in the US is that the electoral system is completely set up so it's impossible to have a socialist or a, you know a, a deep left-wing uh, politician come to power with significant influence. We saw that with the sabotage of Bernie Sanders. You know, Bernie Sanders in a lot of the world is seen as like a, a center-left candidate. He's not some radical revolutionary figure. He's a social democrat. And in much of the world, everything he was calling for is actually already taken as a given. Universal health care, free higher education, you know, these kinds of policies. But we saw what happened. The U.S. political system was so threatened by his campaign that they sabotaged him twice. The reality is you can't vote in socialism. We need socialism, but we can't vote it in. It has to come at the grassroots level through organizing uh, unions, 
a, a militant labor struggle, a militant anti-war movement, organizing, you know, in, in, in the anti-racist movement. You know, Black Lives Matter showed an example of how you can have this revolutionary struggle. And, you know, the Democratic Party is always going to try to co-opt elements of these struggles. But, you know, it's, it's change has always throughout history come at the grassroots. At every single stage, change has come from people organizing, not in, you know, this, this very isolated political system in which only people who are funded by big corporations can win. So, you know, it, that, it sounds difficult, but that's the only way history has ever moved forward. And as bad as things look now, think about how difficult it would have been if you were an abolitionist. Think about how difficult it would have been if the entire U.S. economic system was built on slavery and radical revolutionary abolitionists, they organized, some of them sacrificed their lives. You know, John Brown, they sacrificed their lives in this struggle against the slave economy. And they, they won that struggle. Unfortunately, it culminated in a civil war, but they won that struggle and slavery was abolished. And I think capitalism similar. I think, you know, 100 years from now, people will look back at capitalism like, like how they look back at the slave economy, right? Like feudalism before that. Think of how difficult it would have been to, to abolish the monarchy, to overthrow the monarchy. And yet in much of the world, monarchies are a thing of hundreds of years in the past. So I mean, obviously, we still have to organize, so we shouldn't be hopelessly optimistic, or op that's not the right term. We shouldn't be hopelessly pessimistic, but we shouldn't be so optimistic that we think it's just going to inevitably happen because, you know, obviously, people have to organize. It doesn't just magically happen. But if we look at the, you know, tr the pr trajectory of history, if we look at how feudalism was overthrown, slavery was overthrown, I think capitalism and imperialism are eventually going to be overthrown. It's going to be a difficult process, but we have to, you know, take a step at a time. And the way people can, can do that in the here and now is organize their workplaces, get involved in a labor union, support the labor struggle, join an organization. You know, I think there are great organizations in the U.S. I personally think one of the best is the Party for Socialism and Liberation. But, you know, people also support DSA. There's some people doing good work in DSA. There's other organizations. You know, get involved in an organization. If you're on the left, you understand that, that political change is going to happen through getting involved in collective struggle, not through just individuals. You know, if you're interested in media, get involved in alternative media, build a left-wing platform like the work that you do, like the work that I do. I mean, this is all part of a collective struggle. And yes, it's difficult day by day, but I think in the long term, we're going to win because we're the majority. You know, yeah. working class people who, rep, you know, the 99 percent were the majority and the elite capitalist oligarchs, they're a minority and they, they can only continue to buy off people for so long. So I, I want to just I, I, I piggyback. I wasn't going to ask. I was going to let us go out. But I, I, you brought something up that I think is worth fetting out here. Um, you know, obviously, Lenin had a totally different world he was living in at the time. I mean, you know, looking back at um his struggle, you know, as, as Nicholas went down and, and the burps and fizzles of, of the uh, movement of, you know, labor in Russia. And, and as the, they started building towards the Bolshevik res revolution, et cetera. I mean, there was a lot of times where it pick up and then slow back down. The conditions were right. When the Bolsheviks, we had a war going on, military's out there, they're fatigued. Everything's, I mean, literally it, it was like a, almost like a bulletless revolution. I mean, it was, it was kind of just, it was the conditions were right for it to happen. What do you see as 
in the year 2022, obviously this isn't 1917 or 1905, you know, uh, reading some of Lenin and reading, you know, some of his, uh, you know, even John Reed's uh, 10 days that shook the world, stuff like that. I mean, what do you see in the United States? I, I mean, this is just off the top. What, what do you see in the United States? How, what do you see as a uh, 2022 version of socialism, given the material conditions? Well, it's, of course, very difficult to predict. I mean, there, but there's a few important observations and lessons to take away from the, the Bolshevik Revolution. You're right that at least in the November Revolution in 1917, when the Bolsheviks took power, it was largely, you know, uh, bulletless. It was largely bloodless. Um, but at the same time, after they took power, they took state power. Then the actual violence happened in the Russian Civil War, in which the White Army, the Czarists, who were, you know, fascistic, they were proto-fascists, anti-Semites, uh, you know, against uh, the Roma and other, you know, not uh, oppressed nationalities and committed genocide. They were very violent, and they waged this brutal war to overthrow the Bolshevik government. So. Yes, at the beginning, it was bloodless. But unfortunately, the history of all these revolutions is that the right-wing oligarchy, the capitalists, are not going to go out without a fight. So even though they're a minority, they're going to go down fighting. And the situation is true for every revolution, right? When the Cuban revolution succeeded in 1959, it was after waging months and years of a struggle. And on January 1st, 1959, they eventually took over La Habana, the capital. But that was that was the that was the culmination of the revolution. The, the revolution didn't happen in one day. It happened over a long period. So we can look at all these revolutions and we see that they happen over many months or years. So it's not going to happen in one night. Right. But the situation, another thing to think about, to learn from, is that in the Bolshevik revolution, the Bolsheviks were popular because they were the faction of the left that were against World War One. And in the situation we're in today, I think this is an important historical lesson. We see this proxy war going on right now between NATO and Russia and Ukraine. And we see the U.S. has sent $60 billion in support to Ukraine. I, I did a, an estimate recently that came out to $228 million per day in military aid and weapons to Ukraine. Of course, th that is also largely going to for-profit private contractors. So it's enriching a bunch of corporations in you know the DMV area, DC and Maryland, Virginia. So it's also a huge injection into the military industrial complex. It's billions of dollars going you know directly into the pockets of private companies. And at the same time, we should keep in mind that I, I said that the, that the US is pushing for war with China. And there are some people on the right who are against this war on Russia because they want a war with China. But unfortunately, war with China is pretty much bipartisan. All Republicans are on board, including Trump Republicans, neoconservative Republicans, they all want war with China and pretty much all Democrats as well. You know, Biden keeps saying that that if, you know, China takes action in Taiwan, which is internationally recognized as part of China, the U.S. recognizes the one China policy on paper. And in the 1970s, when the U.S. normalized relations with the People's Republic of China, it signed the three communiques in which the U.S. acknowledged that Taiwan is part of China. And yet we see that Biden has continued Trump's policy of saying that if China takes action in Taiwan, the U.S. is going to militarily intervene, which means war with China. So that's why it's so important at this moment for the left to organize itself as an anti-war voice and to point out that the, the people like Tulsi Gabbard and Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, they're not actually anti-war. They only oppose certain wars. We 
anti-imperialists on the left. We are the only people who are actually anti-war. We are against this proxy war with Russia, but we're also against war on China and anyone else. And if it comes to that situation, which is going to unleash an economic crisis, think about the economic crisis going on in Europe right now over the energy crisis because they can't import Russian energy. It's going to be 10 times worse if the U.S. and Europe can no longer import cheap consumer goods from China. They no longer have access to the Chinese market. We're talking about a, a, a very real possibility of a serious economic crisis in addition to the economic recession now that's inevitable because the, you know, the Fed has raised interest rates, which means that it's very likely that an economic recession is, is on the horizon. So the left needs to articulate these, these positions because in 1916, the International Socialist Movement, as part of the Second International, split over the question of World War I. And pretty much everyone at the time, they called themselves social democrats. They were all socialists. And the socialists who supported World War I, they supported their respective country in World War I. They became irrelevant. And it was the Bolsheviks who were the ones, and Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in Germany, they were the ones who opposed the inter-imperialist war of World War I. And they took a policy of what was called revolutionary defeatism. They said, our imperialist government needs to be defeated. And that should be the position of the left in the United States and in Europe. We don't want war with Russia. We don't want war with China. We want peace because you can't develop socialism. You can't support the working class when you have war, when the working class is being sent off to go fight this rich man's war. That's why it's so important for the left to be anti-war. And that's, that's, I think, the most important historical lesson to take away. Dude, you, I'm so grateful to have you on. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. I could have gone on. Once we start going down, it's like, oh, do I want to bring out? Oh, thank you so much for this. And I look forward, and folks, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I will be talking to Ben on Macro and Cheese. So be prepared for an upcoming episode of Macro and Cheese. Thank you so much, Ben Norton. Tell everybody where we can find more information from you. Yeah, well, anyone who wants to see uh, more of this analysis, this is the stuff I do regularly. You can go to multipolarista.com and you know you can follow me on twitter at benjamin norton and that's it thank you so much i can't wait to talk to you again folks steve grumbine the rogue scholar with my guest ben norton we are i think out of if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org.